Diocese of Churches for the Sake of Others is pleased to present the C4SO podcast, a place to celebrate the voices and values of C4SO. C4SO is a national diocese of the Anglican Church in North America, led by Bishop Todd Hunter. You can learn more about us at c4so.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the C4SO podcast. I'm your host, Ben Sternke, and Bishop Todd was not able to join us today, but I am here with our guest for today's episode, the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Bales, who is the Cathedral Theologian at Christ Church in Plano, Texas. Jonathan, welcome to the C4SO podcast. Thanks, Ben. It's good to be here. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a nice day outside, yeah. and I'm getting nice to work out. from home a little bit, which is nice. Yeah, that is good. I, uh, I work from home most days. Uh, this afternoon, I'm actually going to get together with uh, the two folks that I passed, co-pastor with. Um, we're going to do a little kind of co-working together. But today is a beautiful day in Indianapolis as well. I've got the windows open, um, so you actually may hear in the background, there's somebody, uh, I think, mowing their lawn. Um, but I just decided that it's a nice enough day that I want to keep the windows open, uh, lawn mowing or not. Um well, maybe uh, before we get into our topic for today, Jonathan, maybe just tell us a little bit more about yourself. What do we need to know about you besides the fact that you are the cathedral theologian? Um, yeah, so I, uh, I've been at Christ Church in Plano, which is kind of north of Dallas, mm-hmm. for three years, a little over three years. And um, before that, I was in graduate school up in Boston and... Uh, and then before that, in another graduate school in Alabama. And so I've lived in various cities or various states in the South. I'm originally from South Carolina. And I'm from um, a small city called Spartanburg in South yeah. Carolina. Grew up on a lot of land. So uh, you should know that at heart, I'm just kind of a country boy from the South. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, it's interesting being from the South, a place like South Carolina Mm-hmm. You have a strong sense of of the past um, mm. as both a gift, you know, there's an yeah. incredible sense of gift, but also, you know, as a burden, like you just kind mm-hmm. of carry the past around with you, I think mm. a little bit when you're from the South. Um, mm. Also, I have uh, my wife, Rachel, and I have four children mm-hmm. raging in ages from 10 to nine months. So mm. um, these days I feel mm. both constantly a little overwhelmed and yeah. um, and completely out of my depth, like I don't yeah. know what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're, you're right in it. Um, and so uh, we've, we've got four kids as well. Our, ours are a little older, but, but yeah, you're, you're right in it. Um, so uh, Jonathan, you're here today to talk with us about the church fathers and the church mothers. Um, we're continuing our series today on the gifts of Anglicanism for the body of Christ, where we explore some of the treasures that we've received from this Anglican tradition and how we can steward these riches within the contextual, kingdom-centric, spirit-empowered mission um, in the modern world, which seems to be kind of C4SO's uh, charism, if you will. Um, So far in this series, we've talked about the centrality of the Eucharist. That was our first episode. Um, The formative power of liturgy, which was our second episode. And then our third episode last week was on the Book of Common Prayer, and today our topic is, as uh, mentioned earlier, the church fathers and mothers and why the writings of these early pastors and theologians are treasures that we can draw upon today. Um, 
first of all, I mean, you mentioned growing up in Spartanburg, Jonathan, but did you grow up in the Anglican tradition? And if, if you did not, um, maybe you could tell us the story of your journey into Anglicanism. Where did you come from and what initially attracted you? Yeah, sure. So I did not grow up in the Anglican church, like most people in the ACNA. Yeah. Um, I, but I'd had a wonderful church experience growing up. Um, was born in Presbyterian church, went to Baptist church for a little while. My parents started a very small um, kind of house church when I was young, um, and it grew a little bit larger. It was never a big church, and that's really where I grew up through high school, going to that church. Hmm. And, um, you know, it was it was small most of the time, I would say. Half of the time, we didn't even have a, a paid pastor. Um so it was very lay-led and lay-driven, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it was a great place to be formed as a Christian. Just really wonderful people. Um, and then, you know, I, I had some great experiences, knew a number of people in high school who were charismatic, and so I would worship mm-hmm. in charismatic churches. And, you know, in college, I went to a Presbyterian church, and I went to an immigrant church for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um so really a little all over the place. Yeah. And it wasn't actually until I was in seminary in divinity school that I started attending an Anglican church full time. And I would love to say that there was something really <laughs> compelling that made me um, decide to become Anglican. It was a little bit more calculated and pragmatic than that. I don't have a wonderfully romantic story about it. I was <laughs> thinking through... Um, who would ordain me if I wanted to go into ministry? Yeah. And, you know, in what tradition would I be, would I, you know, sort of be comfortable and think I could minister well in? Mm-hmm. So it feels a little self-serving. And it was a little process of elimination. I didn't think I was Lutheran enough for the Lutherans or Presbyterian yeah. enough for the Presbyterians. And, yeah. you know, the Anglicans seem like they'll ordain anybody. So, <laughs> um, so I mean, there was a little, yeah. a little bit of that. But I was... Yeah. You know, yeah. and I remember in high school, I started to, um, on Christmas, I would always go to the local Episcopal Cathedral, hmm. and just because I loved their liturgy and worship. So I, I was very, um, yeah. I was very drawn to Anglican liturgy. And actually, my first semester at Divinity School, I was in a class on, um, on early Christian theology. Uh, it was called Patristic History and Doctrine, but it was all just sort of primary readings in the Church Fathers taught by this Lutheran professor. And uh, my wife and I both took that together. And really reading them and getting a stronger sense of uh, both the liturgical life of the early church, but just a a sense Mm. of being connected to them and a stronger desire for a kind of Mm. uh, Catholicity, continuity with the early church. I think that's something that, that... um, played a significant role yeah. in me becoming Anglican. Oh. Well, I mean, that's what we're talking with you, par- partly talking with you about uh, as well, in terms of that that Catholicity, especially as we find it in the early uh, church fathers, uh, the writings of the fathers and and you know and mothers. Um, and so, you know, we'll just assume that they're included, uh, you know, as we uh, as we continue this interview. Um, but some of our uh, listeners may not be familiar with the term. We've a lot of clergy who listen, but also a lot of uh, lay people from um, 
C4SO churches and, and outside C4SO. So maybe can you briefly outline what we're referring to when we talk about the church fathers? Like, who are these people and, you know, um, you know where, where do their writings come in uh, in church history? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I don't actually know what the origin of the term church fathers is, but mm-hmm. um, it's pretty widely used, and there's not a sort of canonical list of them somewhere that defines mm-hmm. exactly who the church fathers are. Um, you know, they're, the, the Western church, both the Western church and the Eastern church, have four people whom they refer to as the doctors of the church from the from the early church. And um, so you think of those kind of people who are mostly sort of fourth and fifth century theologians. Mm-hmm. Um, but really it's a it's a group of people whose writings and life span from the second century all the way through kind of the sixth century. Yeah. And it's really just kind of the leading um, bishops, saints, theologians who played an influential role in um, in kind of defining Christianity in the yeah. in its first sort of five centuries or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like uh, the Bible didn't sort of fall out of heaven, you know, uh, just sort of pre pre uh, packaged for us. Um, also, Christian doctrine didn't uh, just spring forth spontaneously from you know. Uh, from some sort of document, right? It had to be worked out, um, and it took you know several hundred years. Um, that that was for me one of the surprising things uh, to learn as coming from a kind of an evangelical Bible church kind of background, where where it was just like, oh, well, this these this is the original thing, and this is what we study. Uh, but just learning like the way that we actually interpret the gospel and what that means. That was a matter of some debate, and we we had to work it out. You know, we had to trust the Holy Spirit was at work in the midst of um, in the midst of this history. Um, so uh, you mentioned you know both the Western and the Eastern Church, um, and that uh, brings brings to mind this question here: the, the Church Fathers belong, of course, not just to Anglicanism, of course, but uh, to the whole Church. Um, but it seems to me. You mentioned, you know, some of these other traditions, Presbyterianism and, and Lutheranism. It seems to me, just uh, from an before I came into Anglicanism, that um, that the Church Fathers w- was an important aspect of the development of uh, Anglicanism, um, in in particular, in the history of Anglicanism. Um, so I wonder if you could give us an overview of how this took place and why it was important, kind of this rediscovery of these writings and how it played into the development of what became Anglicanism. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, so this is not exactly my area of expertise, but I'll, <laughs> you know, I'll tell you what I've, what I've learned. And it's, um, and I'll try not to be cynical. I'm probably not as optimistic <laughs> about how Anglicans have, have read or used the church fathers in the past as some okay. people. Okay. Might be. Um, so, you know, I would say, as you said, I mean, you have, you know, the Eastern Church, we now think of it as sort of various forms of Eastern Orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. The Western Church, which is both Roman Catholic and then, you know, all the various iterations of Protestantism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I mean, Catholics and Orthodox would, I think, would um, be quite taken aback if we said that Anglicans were the ones who, you know, had really had uh, sort of right right reason to appeal to church fathers or that mm. we had treasured them more than anyone else. But it is, mm-hmm. it is true that that's something that's distinctive of Anglicanism, and it's been noticed by others as well. Yeah. Um, during the time of 
the Reformation in England. So you you know think of the 16th century and everything that's going on there. Um, the church fathers do play a role within the Reformation and the writings of the English reformers, but but not in a way I think that's uh, that's distinctive necessarily from what's going on in the continent. So if you read if you read people like Thomas Cranmer, if you read some of the you know homilies in the Book of Homilies, you'll you'll see this. Some of his other writings, certainly people like John Jewell, mm-hmm. um, they will regularly quote church fathers in mm-hmm. in their arguments, often for very polemical reasons. So mm-hmm. so the reason that church fathers are quoted, um, especially by someone like John Jewell in his Apology for the English Church, is to say that you know, that this sort of Protestant thing that's taking place in England isn't discontinuous with, you know, the the Catholic Church of the early church. But in fact, you know, Jewell wants to argue we're more in line with the spirit of the church fathers than the Roman Catholics are. Yeah. Um, and, and later on that, you know, the, the church fathers will be brought up to sort of do the same thing um, mm-hmm. over and against the Puritans. Okay. Um, that's not distinctively Anglican. I mean, if you read John Calvin, he's doing the same thing. Um, and certainly Lutherans, especially, you know, people like Martin Chemnitz are very, you know, uh, quote the church fathers all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not, it's not necessarily distinctively English. And also the English reformers, they don't, I don't think they have deference to church fathers as a kind of unquestioned authority. They'll, they'll, mm quote them when they agree with them, but they're also quite happy to, <laughs> yeah. to simply disagree with them when they think that they contradict yeah. scripture. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, I don't, I don't really think that they're unique. Hmm. And it's actually not until the 17th century that you start seeing people who suggest that, that the role of the church fathers and their importance is somehow distinctive a distinctive of Anglicans among other Protestants. Hmm. Um, so, and you get this both from Anglicans themselves and from others. So, for instance, there's a famous instance of a, a French scholar named Isaac Casubon, um, who who comes over to England in the early 17th century, and he's already well known on the continent. But part of his reason, he was a sort of French Huguenot uh, for a while. Part of his you know, he had to come to England, but he also thinks that the Church of England and Anglicanism, um, you know, really embodies his ideal of a church that's not as not as o- polemical as the Protestant church that he knows in France hmm. and is much more in line with the church fathers. And then hmm. you'll see people like, you know, Jeremy Taylor under, you know, under Charles I and Charles II, these people called the Caroline Divines, people like right. Jeremy Taylor and um, quotes the church fathers all the time. George Herbert, when he's talking about the country parson and and the parson's training, he'll talk a lot about the reading of the church fathers and as well as the reading of scripture. Lancelot Andrews has this famous line where he says that, um, you know, the boundary of English Anglican faith is one canon, two testaments, three creeds, four general councils, and and these five centuries of the church fathers. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think that there's, again, there's a little bit of a sort of polemical edge to what they're doing. 
Mm-hmm. They're trying to define themselves over and against other Protestants, mostly. Yeah. Yeah. But also, they're doing it over and against still Roman Catholics. Right. And they're saying, we, you know, you're sort of the ones who have these novel innovations. Yeah. And we have the truly ancient Catholic faith. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but I don't know that their reading of the Church Fathers is that much better sometimes than that earlier version of just picking things polemically. Yeah. Um, especially after the Restoration in the 18th century, the 19th century, these appeals to the Church Fathers, there's often this language of the consensus of the Fathers that you get, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. a really, you know, um, I don't think it's a very careful reading of mm-hmm. patristic sources. It's just kind of mm-hmm. using their authority in some way. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, that's probably uncharitable. I think that there was a, was a, a general desire to be, to be, um, in unity yeah. with what they saw as the sort of unified expression of the faith in the early centuries before East and West had split. Yeah. Um, and I will say, you know, in more modern era, Anglicans have played an outsized role in both translation and sort of scholarly study of the Church Fathers. I mean, yeah. the, the, there's a strong tradition in France, um, especially mm-hmm. with Catholic scholars, French Catholic scholars, but English scholars um, in the 20th century have played a major role. You think of people like Henry Chadwick, mm-hmm. um, who when when he passed away, I think it was Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, who wrote an obituary and said of Sir Henry Chadwick, who was had been knighted, um, and who was the sort of great living English church father, patristic scholar, and Rowan Williams said, Anglicanism uh, does not have a pope, but we do have <laughs> Sir Henry Chadwick. <laughs> and, and, you know, so Henry Chadwick, J.N.D. Kelly, Richard Hansen, yeah. um, you know, evangelicals, my own professor, Gerald Bray, they, they played a really, um, they've done a lot of work in terms of leading the way among Protestants in translating and studying the father. So I do think that's a, that's a gift that Anglicanism has given to other Christians. As much yeah. as sometimes it's been used polemically um, yeah. in unfortunate ways, it is also uh, something that Anglicans have really valued and yeah. they've put work into. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, you could see that Anglicans have often been the avenue by which other Protestants have rediscovered a love of church fathers is, yeah. is through Anglicans. So. Yeah. It is time once again for the C4SO Cycle of Prayer Spotlight, where we highlight the specific ministry we're praying for this week in our diocesan cycle of prayer. This week we're praying for Church of the Redeemer in Highwood, Illinois, a North Shore suburb in Chicagoland. And that church is led by Jay Greener, and he has joined us to share briefly today about what's going on right now and how we can pray for them. Jay, welcome to the C4SO Cycle of Prayer Spotlight. Thank you, Ben, and we're always welcome. we're always glad to have prayer. <laughs> always yes, need that. So yes, thank you for always, the always glad to have prayer. Jay, you yeah. were with us um, a few episodes ago, mm-hmm. uh, talking about the formative power of liturgy. So it's nice to have you back on the Good podcast. Good to be back. Thank you. Um, what's one thing that you are encouraged by right now that's happening at Church of the Redeemer? You know, I'm very encouraged by the the fact that our congregation is really pressing in, I mean, even in the midst of pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We have not, we have not experienced decline. Uh, people are caring for one another, uh, even though really we're split 
geographically. I mean, we have probably half mm. of our people that are worshiping in person, a half online, but uh, giving has yeah. not suffered, you know, it's and the prayer That's has good. continued. So really excited about the fact that congregation is really being the people of God. Yeah. That's uh that's wonderful to hear. We hear, hear that uh, quite a bit, actually, from a lot of churches uh, that we that we talk with on this segment, and so I'm grateful to hear that. Um, how about, though, a challenge that you're facing right now? Yeah, well, a challenge is also an opportunity for us, and that is right before the pandemic hit, we completed a, a refurbishment of a historic church. I mean, we, we bought this old Methodist church, we gutted it, and then we were mm. out. So now mm-hmm. as we kind of regather and begin to do that, we're, the challenge is how do we do that well? How do okay. we utilize a building in the middle of pandemic so that it's safe, but also yeah. how, we, uh, how we serve the community with that? So mm. that's really a lot of our conversation at vestry level and staff. Uh, so yeah. obviously a challenge, but also a great opportunity too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, in light of uh, all this, how can we pray for you and for Church of the Redeemer right now? Thank you. Um, I would... I would ask prayer for our leadership, um, mm-hmm. clergy, staff members, team leaders, vestry. There's so many things right now that can divide us. I mean, mm-hmm. we can get into all kinds of the things that are dividing the whole country. And right. so I would, I would ask for prayer for unity. Uh, pretty much we are, but I, I continue, yeah. you know, don't let up on that. Um, <laughs> but also protection uh, for our leaders yeah. with everything that's going on that we see in the church everywhere and that we would just be, have the protection of the Holy Spirit and also mm. the joy, the joy of leading and serving. And that we'd love, yeah. we'd love well. We'd love our people well and we'd love the community well, the, the, the world that uh, God loves. Yeah. Well, amen. We'll be in prayer for you and for Church of the Redeemer uh, in that regard. Thanks for joining us today, Jay. Thank you. And uh, listeners, if you'd like to find out more about Church of the Redeemer or perhaps even support them in their work, you can check out the link in the show notes. Yeah, I remember when um, someone, uh, an Anglican priest that I know, gathered a like a reading group of, of others um, who wanted to kind of dive more deeply into uh, Anglicanism, like, and he started with the Church Fathers. He was like, "All right, we're going to read Justin Martyr." You know, I was like, "Okay, we're going way back there." You know, 150 A.D., uh, and that's kind of where we started. And so, uh, there's always been, for me anyway, there's always been that association. So, I appreciate that very uh, nuanced answer. Uh, I learned a lot there, and just uh, from what you said. Um, so maybe, maybe you could answer this from your perspective. Then um, I know you. We'll talk a little bit more about this later, but you wrote your dissertation on uh, Gregory of Nyssa, who's a fourth century church father. Um, but um, many of us who started somewhere else, like you, um, kind of outside Anglicanism and who made their way into it, we grew up with the assumption, kind of this evangelical assumption that I talked about earlier, that we just need to get back to the Bible itself. We interpret the text for ourselves. You know, we need to, and Anglicanism obviously has a very high view of Scripture. That is our authority. You know, there's, you know, we don't have a magisterium and all of that kind of thing. But from your perspective, um, why should we care about what these early Christians wrote and how they interpreted the Scriptures and how they practiced their faith? What what role should this have in the way that we do our lives and think about our faith today? Yeah, that's a really good question um, because I think you're. I think you're right. I do think that there's often a popular assumption that, you know, well, we don't need the church fathers. We, we have the mm-hmm. Bible um, right. and it's directly accessible. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I mean, we live in a time when everyone can read the Bible, and we have we right. have more really good quality uh, translations of the Bible in our own vernacular language of English than any people at any time in human history. Yeah. Um, it's so <laughs> it's remarkable. so it really is incredible. Yeah. At the same time, um, you know, it 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 strikes me as uh, it, it's a it's a very unintentionally so I think, but but it is a little bit of an arrogant attitude to think that um, we have no need mm. of those in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I think on the one hand there there's an there's a probably undue uh, confidence in our own ability as readers and as thinkers. Mm. Um, so uh, just a dose of humility would suggest that that maybe reading the Bible by ourselves and simply um, coming to the conclusions by ourselves is not uh, is not the best way to do things. Theologically, of course, there's also a reason. I mean, this isn't just, mm-hmm. um, you know, this isn't just a sort of argument from common sense or humility. Um, the Holy Spirit has been active within the life of the church in its past. Mm-hmm. And Jesus prayed that the Spirit would lead us into all truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and the church doesn't just read the Bible as a bunch of individuals by themselves. Christians mm-hmm. have always read the Bible as a community. And if we if we trust that what Jesus said is true and that God really has overseen um, the history of the church is much, you know, with all its failings, um, we have been through momentous disagreements and debates before, and, um, and we have come to, you know, relative consensus about really defining issues mm-hmm. in the faith and how to read the Bible properly. I mean, if you, one interesting thing about the church fathers is, um, you know, they, they're dealing a lot with, um, issues of heresy or heterodoxy, you know, mm-hmm. wrong belief. Right. Um, and how do we, you know, how do we really understand the nature of Jesus Christ? Are, is, there, yeah. is there only one God who has created everything and also redeemed us? Or is there maybe, sir, you know, some other God who created the world and then there's the Father of Jesus Christ? I mean, there's all kind of questions, really mm-hmm. basic questions. And you know, something that, for instance, the church father Athanasius, um, who is a bishop in Alexandria in the fourth century, he complains that that heretics or, or people who are making these arguments for very, very wrong beliefs that undermine the gospel. He mm. says that the problem is that they can all read scripture and they all yeah. quote scripture. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, you know, when you, when you start reading the church fathers, you realize... Um, you know, everyone was sort of reading the Bible and quoting the Bible. Yeah. And, um, and that's why early, earlier church fathers like Irenaeus will talk about something called the, the rule of faith or the, the rule of truth, that the, the church um, has, has, by God, been led to understand um, that the meaning, the sort of goal of Scripture and its meaning is encapsulated in something like the creeds and that this has to, this has to actually somehow rule or this has to influence and determine the way that we then read scripture. Irenaeus uses this great image. He says, uh, 
he, he talks about a mosaic, you know, you've got all these different stones and you can align them in different ways to make mm. a picture. And, uh, and he says that, you know, people who read scripture, who don't understand the church's rule of faith, it's like people who are trying to put together a mosaic, but they don't actually know what the image is supposed to be because they've never seen the image. And so they take these same stones and instead of coming to the image of the face of a king, which is what the mosaic is supposed to be, you know, they, they put them together in such a way that it ends up looking like a fox. Yeah. And um, so I think in that sense, I mean, that's a good reason why I think we, the church fathers are important just in how we, we yeah. read scripture. But also, you know, they're helpful because a lot of the same things that we're dealing with today— they're not new, and mm. Christians have thought about them before. They've faced them before, and really, they've thought about them in pretty sophisticated ways. Yeah. Um, so you know, the the church fathers they're living during a time when, um, you know, Christians are are not a kind of hegemony. Mm-hmm. Um, that they're for the most part a minority yeah. within a Roman Empire that is that it has a lot of pluralism in many ways. Mm-hmm. There are enormous debates going on about uh, power and the use of power, about questions of, of social ethics and social justice, about questions of poverty, um, of the family. Uh, I mean, sexuality. Sexuality was a hugely uh, divisive thing between Christians and, and a lot of Roman pagans. Um, and, you know, it's a lot of the same things that we're facing today, hmm. and they've, they've already gone through it, uh, the, yeah. which isn't to say that they always, that, that early Christians always make the right decisions, right. Um, or that they, you know, yeah. but, but it is to say that we, we have a lot we can learn if we just yeah. pay attention to them. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. And I, I, I hear in that some of, some of my realization, I guess, when I, when I first started studying, it was actually studying liturgy. And realizing that, like, oh, there's this, there's a shape to Christian liturgy uh, that has been, you know, sort of developed over time, mm. and re- realizing, like, I, I had been having, I didn't realize I had this assumption, but I had this assumption that the Holy Spirit, um, I don't know, just I, I came out of a charismatic background, and so it was like the Holy Spirit hadn't been really involved in the church until, you know, I don't know, the '70s when, when the charismatic renewal kind of hit, and I just thought, man, that is that is a, a little bit of an arrogant assumption to assume that the Holy Spirit has not been at work uh, in the midst of these debates, uh, in the midst of the life of the church, I mean, all that kind of thing. So that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, can you name? Uh, one way that for you that your theology or practice has changed after reading you know, like uh, the church fathers hmm. something that's changed for you I, I I wish that a lot more had changed for me after <laughs> reading the church fathers um, I think there's probably a lot that I should have learned from them that I still haven't hmm. you know I would say um, so just thinking about just thinking about kind of um, the way I Think about theology. You know, I mean, you said earlier, my uh, I have this really fancy title in my church, which is like yeah, I'm right. the I'm the church's theologian. You know, so yeah, that's yeah, that is yeah. that's my job. I'm supposed to be a theologian, uh-huh. and um, which you know, which is not something distinctive to me. Every mm-hmm. every minister, uh, certainly every priest, uh, is is called to um, 
to be a theologian and their vocation, um, you know, and uh, laity are called to this as well. But what mm-hmm. is it, you know, h- how do we do that well? One thing I think I have learned from engaging the church fathers is I think I have probably become less compartmentalized maybe in hopefully in the way I think about theology. In, in, so what I mean is this, um, one thing that is distinctive about the church fathers, and um, you know, this, is not, this is not something, a sort of original observation I'm making. Um, uh, the, the Catholic theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, he wrote a really famous essay about this in the earlier 20th century um, called Theology and Sanctity. But it's, but it's about the way in which uh, the life of prayer and worship Mm-hmm. and ethics uh, and living virtue and um, ref- and then intellectual reflection on God uh, that those are not those are not sort of separated and distinguished uh-huh. yeah and um, and so you know if you read for instance uh, Gregory of Nazianzus who's a fourth century bishop and, and theologian and he talks about uh, theology and he says that it is necessary um, if you want to do theology well, then uh, then sanctity and holiness hmm. um, are a prerequisite, and prayer. Um, and in saying that, he's he's suggesting that that reflection on God can't be sort of divided up simply into an intellectual task yeah. that is separated from the life of prayer. Or, um, yes. or from holiness of life. Th- yeah. th- these are all kind of one and the same. And at the same time, um, that prayer and that um, and that Christian living, morality, mm-hmm. ethics, um, virtue, that none of these can be. You can't make pro- progress in any of them without theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, without theology, by which I don't just mean reading books, but I mean sort of contemplation and reflection of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, yeah. As it is revealed in the scriptures. That is what theology is. Uh, it's the revelation and the this, this sort of study of the being of God as revealed in the, uh, the works of God, and mm. especially in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Mm. And you, you can't, um, you can't sort of say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian and, you know, I really want to focus on works of mercy or I really want to focus on a life of prayer or I really want to, um, you know, but I'm not really interested in theology. Yeah. I don't think that would make any sense yeah. for the church fathers. Yeah, that's great. Um, there's like an integration that I hear you talking about that pushes against maybe our modern tendency to separate things out and put them in buckets mm-hmm. um, and just think, oh, I'm just going to think about God and you know, maybe I don't even believe in God, but I'm going to think about, you know, God. Um, the church fathers, that would be a totally foreign, totally foreign concept. Yeah, that's really good. Um, all right. How about, how about some rapid fire questions? Yeah, sure. All right. Rapid fire questions. Who is your favorite church father or mother? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. You know, uh, I have always really loved Polycarp. Okay. Um, who I don't know is if he's always thought of. Uh, within the church fathers, 
Yeah. Uh, he's kind of an apostolic father. Um, very early, late first century, early second century. But he's uh, um, in that class that I took with Rachel in seminary, we read the account of his martyrdom. And mm-hmm. both of us were just so taken by the beauty of his person and witness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we always talked about, is there any way we could name like one of our children after him? And, <laughs> you know, the, the answer quite. is no. no you, can't, yeah, yeah. you can't incorporate Polycarp <laughs> into anything. But I still, even though yeah. I, I won't yeah. name my children after him, um, yeah, He's I really admire him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who's your least favorite oh, of, the, is, of the ones that you've read? Least favorite. Well, there's certainly some curmudgeonly and odd church fathers out there. You know, um, th- this would this would uh, probably not make me friends uh, in a number of circles, but I do not really like pseudo Dionysius, and I, that's a that's a strange name to mention. Um, yeah, yeah. And you could change tell just by the name pseudo that there's already some suspicion some about questions him. about. Yeah. Um, he's he, many people probably wouldn't think of him as a church father. He was probably, we don't know exactly who he was. He's probably in the sixth century. Um, but actually he was extremely influential in the middle ages. Hmm. Um, Thomas Aquinas quotes him uh, more than anyone else other than Augustine. In fact, hmm. um, in, in his summa. So, Pseudo Dionysius is very, very influential, and a lot of like contemporary people really love him. Hmm. Um, and I, I just think he's essentially a Neoplatonist philosopher who is pretty unconverted in his thinking. <laughs> okay, very yeah. good. Hot takes here. I love yeah. It. Sure. Uh, who's the weirdest church father? Oh, the weirdest church father. Well, I don't know that. He, again, probably wouldn't be necessarily considered a church father. He was considered a saint, and he was very mm-hmm. influential. In the uh, fourth century, he lived in um, near Aleppo in, in modern-day Turkey. But there was a guy named Simeon Stylitas. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, often mm-hmm. referred to as Simeon the Stylite. Stylite so yep. this is when like um, you know, monasticism started to become a really big thing in Egypt and other mm-hmm. parts of the Eastern Empire in the fourth century. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took different forms— um, Cenobitic, which means common life. You have people getting together and anchoritic, like people living alone. And Simeon, he started off living in a monastery with other people, but the other brothers quickly realized he was way too radical and austere for, and they just kind of kicked him out and said, you need to go do your own thing. <laughs> and he just kind of became like, he just found more and more solitary places to live. And he ended yeah. up spending more than three decades of his life living on top of a pillar. <laughs> and the, so the word stele in Greek, yeah. it just means pillar. So he's yeah. the, he's Simeon, the pillar dweller, um, yeah. is what his name means. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I, I know that people really admired him and flocked to, to, yeah. to him, to listen to him preach mm-hmm. and, and, you know, thought his prayers were remarkably effective. I just, I just think it's weird. <laughs> great. it does i mean it's you're right it sounds very weird to our ears to have yeah. somebody sit on top of a pillow yeah. as, a, as yeah. an act of devotion okay that's that's yeah. strange it sounds yeah. weird. so um all right well who has the most interesting life story i i would say probably augustine um okay. and mostly that's because he actually wrote it down and so we yeah, know a we, lot more about his life story yeah. than other people yeah. um you know a lot of life stories of church fathers are a mixture of probably history and a little bit of legend. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the Confessions is, when people ask me, you know, what should I read from the Church Fathers? The Confessions is still one of the first things I recommend because mm-hmm. uh, not only is it just profound, and it's actually pretty relatable, um, mm-hmm. 
you know, but it's also one of the easiest, like it's one of the best reads. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, great. Um, and then who is a church father you'd want to have a long meal with and why? Um, I'm, I'm going to say Gregory of Nyssa okay. and mostly because I'd like to hear what he thinks about my dissertation Yeah, <laughs> and what I said about him. <laughs> What summarize it real quickly for us? What did you say about Gregory of Nyssa in your in your dissertation? Yeah, so I, I looked at how he thinks about God um, mm-hmm. within you know he was someone that sort of argued a lot for Nicene Trinitarian doctrine. But what okay. I wanted to know is how is his arguments about the person of Jesus Christ and the sort of you know how Jesus is God? How does that affect the way that he conceives of perfection itself? Because because he, like a lot of, not just Christians, a lot of sort of philosophical schools in the ancient world thought of virtue or human excellence as essentially becoming like the divine, like God. So my question was, okay, what does Gregory think of God? How is it influenced mm-hmm. by Jesus? And then how does that change what he thinks human virtue is? So most okay. of my okay. dissertation looks at all of his writings on... Um, you know, the nature of the human person and okay. um, the ascetical life and the mystical life and virtue to say, how does his understanding of God sort of change the way he thinks about everything else? Hmm. Actually sounds really interesting. Not, I thought not so all at dissertations. the time. Yeah. It took me a long time to write it though, you know, and by the yeah. end, I, yeah. I think anything would have sounded more interesting to me than what I was working oh, on. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah th- that's when you spend a lot of time on something, you're just yeah. like, this, this is boring and right. terrible. I don't right. like it at all. Um, all right, let's get practical as we wind things down here. Um, so if folks are interested maybe in doing some of their own reading of the Church Fathers, you mentioned maybe starting with the Confessions. Um, what, what else would you recommend? Um, where, where should people start? If yeah. You know, the confessions and what else? So I, I do think, I, um, I would say, read, read actual works of the fathers. Okay. You know? Um, Not works about them. Right, or, yeah. yeah. C.S. Lewis, um, people might have read his essay on the reading of old books, which is actually originally, it was a, it was a prologue or a foreword to a translation of a church father's work. And one of the things he says in it is, um, because he taught philosophy at Oxford for a little while, and he says mm-hmm. students would come to him and they would say, you know, I really want to understand Plato or something like that. Well, you know, what, what sort of modern scholarship should I read to understand Plato? And he would always say, well, you should read Plato because he's far more intelligible <laughs> than anyone who's ever written about him. Um, yeah, just start there. And yeah. I think sometimes people don't have the confidence to think, oh, I can actually I just go just read, read the Church Fathers. Yeah. They think that they have to read someone explaining it to them. And, you mm. know, the books about Church Fathers aren't bad. Um, but I would say Confessions is great. There's a lot of good translations. Um, mm. there's, a, um, there's a series that St. Vladimir's Press puts out, mm-hmm. uh, which is a uh, connected to a Russian Orthodox seminary or uh, OCA seminary. Um, and uh, I like a lot of, they, this is like small paperbacks and they publish a lot of things with yep. sort of modern English translation. So they're very well yeah. done, very clear. So I would just say, you know, just get on the website for that press and just mm-hmm. buy something and read it. Yeah. Just, yeah. Ju- just, just start somewhere. There's a lot of yeah. good stuff. Yeah, there, there is, there is. I've, I have a lot of those uh, editions uh, on my shelf. Um, what are some common mistakes people make when they're first trying to start maybe reading the church fathers? Well, so one is, as I said, I think that there's a little bit of a mistake in, in um, 
feeling like I have to I have to read a secondary source explaining them mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. There's that, that kind of textbook approach. Yeah. Um, I also think that this was, you know, and this was a bit my criticism of Anglicans. Um, and this is not uniquely to Anglicans, but just of how church fathers have been used polemically. Yeah. That a lot of times we read them just trying to figure out if they support what we want them to say. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you could be a Caroline divine saying, you know, I want to read the consensus of the fathers to show both that we're better than the Roman Catholics and that we're right. better than, you know, right. those Genevan Protestants or those Puritans who don't, who aren't really in line with the ancient past. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, modern Anglicans, I mean, we, we do have this tendency to, unfortunately, to think of ourselves as, as better than other Christians. Mm. Um, and, and if you read the church fathers, just so that you could say, you know, do they affirm what I think? Yeah. And can I find justification? Mm-hmm. Um, can I find something that church fathers say that I can use in an argument? Um, yeah. Or that I can show that, you know, I'm sort of a more superior Christian than someone else. Um, yeah. I think that that filters into our reading a lot of times yeah. and you need to be yeah. careful about it. Yeah. Um, and instead, simply read and ask yourself the question, uh, what's important to this person? Mm. Um, and why are they writing this work in the first place? Yeah. Um, you know, why do they put that paragraph in the midst of this work? Um, mm-hmm. You know, those kind of questions I think are much more helpful. Yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful. That's really good. Uh, I think that's wise advice from well, a thanks. theologian at a yeah, cathedral. From, and Yeah, and it's official. <laughs> that is my title, theologian. That's so. good. That's good. Well, hey, Jonathan, thanks so much for being with us today. Um, uh, this has been really rich, uh, and I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. Thanks, Ben. I enjoyed it. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the C4SO podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. Email us your thoughts and suggestions at connect at c4so.org.